G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and welcome to The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. In this episode, let's talk about education. The latest ranking of top countries in maths and science is out and Australia is falling behind. As a nation, Australia was significantly outperformed by nine countries in the OECD, including Japan, Canada and Singapore. Well, it's been claimed today that Australia's education system is in crisis. Experts have told politicians that the nation's schools are marching backwards and students are stuck in the crossfire. They say that if more money isn't injected immediately, there are severe social and economic consequences. Today we're announcing that every school will receive Commonwealth funding on a genuine needs basis, consistently across Australia, as David Gonski recommended in his report six years ago. These students are going to be competing with students from Singapore, students from other countries in the world for global jobs. So in that, in that sense, they're not going to be terribly competitive. For close to two decades, performance in Australian schools in reading, maths and science has declined steadily. As other countries improve, we're left behind. And recently, reports have questioned the efficacy of Australia's vocational education system. And of course, higher education has its own arguments. In this episode, principally traversing schooling, but also touching on post-school education, we ask, how do we ensure that young Australians receive the best education? And what might we teach tomorrow's generation that will make sense for a very different world? To help us answer these questions, we're joined by Dr. Michelle Brunages, the Secretary of the Australian Department of Education and Training. Michelle previously led the New South Wales and ACT Departments of Education and has been widely acclaimed for her significant contribution to education through an Order of Australia Award and a Gold Medal Award from the Australian Council of Educational Leaders. Michelle, welcome to The Policy Shop. Thank you so much. According to the Programme for International Student Assessment, or PISA, Australian students' results in reading, maths and science have declined steadily since 2000. And this is significant in maths and science, for example. An average Australian 15-year-old has the problem-solving skills equivalent to a 12-year-old Korean pupil. How do we make sense of this data and what's driving these results? Well, Glenn, um, it's very true that Australians' uh, results have declined despite a whole lot of strategies put in by states and territories and indeed uh, funding from both uh, the Commonwealth and states and territories. I think when we look internationally, uh, we do need to stop, look and listen and to ensure that we have a close look at what other countries who are doing well on the PISA measure are doing and uh, learn from them. At the same time, we need to look at our own practice to ensure that uh, we know what we can do better to improve the outcomes for students. The coordinator for PISA linked Australia's steady decline in all three test areas to what they called the country's tolerance of failure in schools. Is this a fair assessment? I think that's a bit harsh. Um, my view would be that uh, we have a enormous amount of energy and effort from our teaching workforce out there in support of the children that they teach every day. Uh, and I think what we need to do is to support our profession even more so to ensure that they get the best they can from the children that they teach every day. You have a background in educational assessment, so are there a few people better equipped to think about the PISA and the NAPLAN tests that we're using and how to interpret the data? 
What sort of success should we be looking for and what should we make of the results we have today? Look, I think with regard uh, to the PISA assessment, uh, what we do know is when we look deeply into the data, we do know that we are declining at the top end of achievement more so than the bottom end. And that breaks questions about how indeed we support uh, all children in all classroom settings and all types of schools to be stretched and to be able to do the best they possibly can. Remember that NAPLAN really looks at literacy and numeracy, where PISA actually looks at the application of skill sets for those children. So on both measures, um, we're just, in in the case of NAPLAN, we're maintaining uh, a level of achievement, which isn't good enough. We need to improve on that. With PISA results, um, only every three years we gain that assessment, but it is the top end that's actually declining. And so looking at both scales, we need to ensure that uh, teachers in classrooms are aware about individual student achievement and what they may do to stretch every student, have high expectations for every student uh, and work really hard at doing that. And just staying with NAPLAN for a second, uh, of course it has its critics who argue that the technology is problematic, that students dislike it and that schools don't necessarily find it value in enhancing their teaching program. What's the departmental view of NAPLAN and its value? Look, I think um, from uh, NAPLAN, when NAPLAN was first introduced in 2008, it gave us uh, a good national measure of literacy and numeracy. Uh, it is a measure that gives us uh, a measure at one point in time on some aspects of literacy and numeracy. But as an educator, I would be the very first to say that uh, literacy and numeracy are fundamental skills and teachers uh, need to look at that evidence, have a look at what the strengths and weaknesses are, and how they compare within their school, across schools and across states and territories as one means of comparison about what they decide to do next in a teaching and learning context. And of course, as an educator, you're looking intensely at the other countries that are measured by PISA and, for example, Singapore in our region, the highest achieving primary and secondary schools in international education tests in maths and science. What lessons do you draw from our region as well as from other consistently high-performing countries such as Finland, such as Canada? Look, I think there's many lessons that we need to take stock of from our um, colleagues in high-performing countries. Uh, Some of the um, research that are done in places like Singapore, like Finland, uh, actually look at the nature and structure of the day. They look at the high value of teaching as the the status of the teaching uh, profession, which is incredibly important. They look at uh, principalship and the importance of school leadership. They look at how to best use teachers in schools. And sometimes that means bigger class sizes. Sometimes that means smaller group to ensure that they're meeting the needs of the students. So many, many lessons we can learn. We need to look at their policy. We need to look at their school improvement initiatives. We need to have a look and uh, make sure that we understand the structure of those education systems, which is markedly different from ours in many aspects, but it is certainly a source of valuable information for us to reflect and refine our reform initiatives here in the Australian context. Can you say a little more about the status of the teaching profession and why that's a variable that matters? Oh, look, uh, Glenn, as a teacher, um, you know, I still hold that um, very dear as a profession. I think it absolutely matters. I think our teachers um, take on responsibility for other people's children every day and uh, what a great trust uh, parents have 
and uh, carers have in school systems and uh, classrooms when we do that. I think our teachers work extraordinarily hard. Uh, They have a, a complex task in working with classrooms, with a whole lot of changes in curriculum, with structures. And I actually think we should be very, very proud of the teaching profession and indeed uh, need to recognise their achievements uh, in dealing with a whole range of things that happen in a school context uh, every day of every week of every year. Uh, Incredible um, support that our teachers need. Indeed. So are there things that policy can do to change uh, the status of the teaching profession in our community or are we dealing here with a wider set of social issues that uh, are not perhaps in the control of government? Look, I think it's a combination of both. I I do think uh, here in the Australian context we have a set of national professional teaching standards and I think that does a great deal uh, towards articulating and describing uh, the range of skills that we have from accomplished teachers to lead teachers. I think that's an important advancement um, in the in the national architecture and recognising of teachers, particularly those with exemplar skills and how they might mentor other teachers to become. I think in pre-service education, um, a lot to do with uh, ensuring that our pre-service um, courses for our teachers are in line with the current curriculum content and our universities um, do a fantastic job at supporting the pre-service needs of our, our workforce, looking closely at uh, how those teachers particularly participate in practicum, how that's supervised, how we recognise their achievements, a whole range of uh, things in pre-service that we're really keen to support the profession. Um, Remembering that once you enter the workforce as a teacher, it's a long haul. And so continuous professional development of those teachers to ensure that they keep up with uh, technological advancements, changes in curriculum is an important component of us showing that we value our teaching profession and that, in fact, uh, will help raise the status of the profession. I I mentioned your doctorate in educational uh, measurement, which, of course, makes you an expert in the field, but much of the debate in the public domain about education is very much about people's views rather than necessarily evidence. And one education policy analyst recently wrote about the triumph of intuition over evidence in recent education debates, and he drew the example of the program under the Rudd and Gillard governments where students from years 9 to 12 received laptops, which cost around $2 billion, but had no measurable effect on student results. And uh, likewise, we hear arguments about class size and whether these are important variables, even though the research shows clearly that it's not the major element in explaining student achievement. How do we encourage an evidence-based discussion? Look, I do think uh, we need to turn a much greater attention to evidence um, coming from a measurement perspective, having the right scales, having to be able to look at the data we're collecting, look at the validity, the reliability of data that we have before us, um, to rely and form strategic partnerships and alliances with the university sector and and third-party providers who do have a great deal of evidence um, to, to link that evidence up to inform policy uh, discussion. To me, it's absolutely critical. You know, I look across um, the Department of Education training here at the Commonwealth level, and uh, we have a lot of data um, in early childhood, in the schooling sector, in the um, tertiary sector, including VET and higher ed and international 
And uh, what we need to do here uh, is to be able to link that data and to be able to use it better to inform policy positions and options for government. So to me, that's still work in progress, right from the Commonwealth Department's level, right to forming strategic partnerships and alliances with universities to be able to research and help us understand what the data is telling us, and right down at the classroom level where every teacher um, in every classroom should be keenly tuned in to knowing uh, where students are at, making decisions about, indeed, what they need to do next based on the very best of research. I think we're really fantastic at doing a lot of research. What we aren't good at is turning research into practice and being very clear about what it is that teachers need to do differently as a result of that research. I'd like to pursue that a little further, if I may, Michelle. Uh, a recent Australian Centre for Educational Research report found, and I'm quoting here, levels of national expenditure on schools are generally not correlated with measures of student performance. That is, it isn't true that the more money you spend, the better outcomes you get necessarily. Uh, and that report documented the case of quite a number of nations that spend less on schools but get better education outcomes than we do. Again, how do we pursue evidence like that? How do we take it down to classroom level? And what lessons should we be drawing as people thinking about and talking about policy? Uh, Glenn, I think the OECD has a similar uh, view where there's a diminishing rate of return after a certain amount of dollar figure goes into the education sector. I would be the first to say that we actually need, and, and you know from the Commonwealth's perspective, um, funding will increase year on year. Uh, between now and indeed the next decade uh, for our schools. The important bit uh, for me is that, one, funding is increasing, and two, we look very hard about how we're spending those dollars. Uh, we need to understand what good intervention strategies look like for students. We need to know where they're at, and this is where the measurement side comes in. We need to have good scales of achievement in literacy, numeracy and beyond. We need to look at those things that we know our students are going to need for, um, you know, this decade and beyond. We need to look at constructing good scales on problem solving, on communication, on critical thinking beyond literacy and numeracy so that we do have a good sense of making sure that we are educating students for the future. Now, to be able to do that, we need to ensure that our teacher professional learning and how we spend dollars in the area of teacher professional learning is actually on task that, uh, you know, many, many states and territories, in fact, all now, I think, have accredited professional learning programs, which have really the heart tick to say this is an accredited professional learning program and this will add. I think the challenge for us is to every teacher to look at what they know and what they don't know, and to ensure that their professional learning and the spend of money on teacher professional learning is in a worthwhile uh, area and not something that's based on intuition or uh, something that might be nice to do. We need to focus our energy and effort on understanding what will improve student outcomes. So the Chief Executive of the Australian Institute for Teaching and Social Leadership, Lisa Rogers, has said, and here I quote, when you send your kids to an Australian school, effective teaching should be a certainty, not a lottery. So she's arguing that we're not seeing those sorts of consistent results that you've just talked about being achieved in our school system. What needs to be changed to do so? Look, I think the national professional teaching standards go a long way towards doing that. But we, what you have to do is to ensure that they're um, operationalised or implemented in each school section. So I would absolutely support Lisa's Rogers' view that it needs to be a certainty and not a lottery. And that, uh, in fact, that uh, part of that 
part of ensuring that we do that is that we focus on our school leadership, uh, that indeed performance development cycles for teachers and where their professional learning dollars are spent goes to areas of weakness that are identified, that we performance develop our staff and that we be really frank and fearless about providing good constructive feedback to teachers about where they're doing well and where they're not doing so well. As you know, much of the public debate on on teacher quality focuses on ATAR results, and indeed some states and territories have talked about legislating to put minimum standards here. Does ATAR provide uh, a meaningful measure of future teacher quality? And if not, what should we be doing to uh, make sure that we're attracting the very best students into teaching? Look, there are probably a range of views around the usefulness of ATAR across the country, uh, Glenn, and uh, we have to remember that an ATAR is actually a rank, it's not a mark. So some of the confusion comes with uh, people confusing the notion of a, a rank. I just think it's one indicator at one point of time based on uh, one assessment and that we have to have a holistic look at uh, those that are entering both university, but more importantly, how they're finishing their university courses. You know, on entry to pre-service or or faculties of education across the country, uh, there will always be a need to have a threshold or uh, some kind of cut or mechanism to work out who gets in and who doesn't. The most important thing for me is the quality of the course once they're in the universities and indeed once they've finished their university course that they are work ready, they're ready to teach, uh, they're on top of the latest and well equipped to uh, support students in all diverse contexts across Australia. How do you respond to arguments about initial teacher training being best as a graduate entry rather than undergraduate? Look, I think there's a mixed mode. You know, Finland requires the completion of a master's degree. Uh, We've all heard of Finland doing that. You know, I think we've got to look to the future. I think our system has served us uh, relatively well in the past, but the future is very, very different uh, for both students and teachers, just purely from the introduction of IT. So I actually think we need a mixed uh, response to that. We need to be able to continually support teachers both at the undergraduate and the graduate level uh, to ensure that, uh, you know, it is is a fact of lifelong learning these days. You can't walk into a classroom today. And I left probably over 10 years ago and I wouldn't uh, deem to to profess that at the moment uh, with changes in curriculum, changes in IT, changes in pedagogical practice, that I would be up to speed. I think everyone needs to realise that you need a combination of both the undergraduate and graduate. Let's turn to Gonski 2.0 and the arguments for needs-based funding. You voiced very strong support in favour of this plan. Um, Why so? Simply because um, I think as a teacher, coming from a strong teacher background, I uh, know what it's like to teach students of all different characteristics and simply put some students need more support than others on entry to school and during the school. So needs-based funding is an incredibly important uh, principle that I think uh, enables resources to be allocated to schools uh, with a view in mind of those students' need. So why the controversy then? I think most people would agree that needs-based funding makes lots of sense. Why has this uh, proposal sparked such 
weighty debates? In my view, you know, having operationalised a needs-based funding model in New South Wales in my previous role, that was the way we allocated resources to school. Though different systems make different kinds of decisions on how they do it. From a Commonwealth perspective, uh, we've put in a needs-based funding and that's how we will allocate uh, that funding based on six loadings, the loadings of the size of the school, based on the location of the school, the low SES measure, English language proficiency, students with a disability and whether or not you're Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. So we will calculate the amount of money, um, the cheque that will go to the system based on those six loadings and based on that needs-based uh, formula. There's a lot of research behind each of those six loadings, Glenn. I think they're absolutely justifiable. We know currently there's some discussion and debate around the SES and the calculation of SES and the new National Schools Resourcing Board will indeed undertake a review of the SES. So I think that's probably the variable that's most or the loading that's uh, indeed most under um, contention at the moment. I think that's so. Uh, any sense of when that report will be received? Uh, look, they're up and running at the moment, the National Schools Resourcing Board, so it's really their remit um, as soon as possible. Hopefully they need to do the work, they need to do the technical work, they need to look at uh, providing recommendations to government. So um, that will happen in uh, next year, during next year. You mentioned the six measures and one of those is about Indigenous uh, students and here the evidence is pretty stark. The PISA assessment show that the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous hasn't changed, certainly over the last five years. An Indigenous 15-year-old remains approximately two and a half years behind their non-Indigenous peers in schooling. How will Gonski 2.0 and the needs-based funding address that very significant deficiency? There's an enormous gap, and I don't think there's anyone that's not concerned about that gap. Uh, in my previous role, I headed Aboriginal Affairs for five years in the state of New South Wales, and one of the greatest lessons that I learned from those five years in working closely with different Aboriginal communities across New South Wales is to be able to do things in um, co-partnership and co-design with communities. I think that we would better build momentum in some of those communities and better outcomes for Aboriginal students if, in fact, we underpin the work of community and we worked in, uh, you know, co-design ways with communities to understand uh, what would come first. And I can give you an example, one that I've quoted before. I worked in the community of um, Walgut in western New South Wales and indeed um, there was an attendance problem with those children getting to school. Uh, when spent time within that community, uh, we needed to be able to build a road from Guinea Mission, which is about 14k out of town, so that the bus got down that road to get the children to come to school. Now, their attendance was really poor uh, when it was rainy because the bus couldn't get down the road. So one of the first things we did was uh, using education budget, we actually built a road so the bus could get down the road. Now, that's not going to be all and end all, but that's just an example of being very familiar with what's on the ground in particular communities uh, listening and learning from community and then underpinning the work and putting things in a scope and sequence to ensure that the outcomes are reached. Did school attendance change? from? Uh, yes, it did. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. I haven't, haven't checked back in the last 18 months, but we certainly had a change. There were lots of other things that we did with community out there and uh, at least it gave access 
uh, to be able to get to school. So it wasn't the intention of uh, not getting to school. Um, it was the fact that uh, in some periods there was no mechanism of transport of getting to school. I'd like to draw on your experience in New South Wales uh, for a minute to talk about federal-state relations. You've run the ACT in New South Wales, Departments of Education, and then last year you were appointed as Secretary of the Federal Education Department. That means you've, in effect, sat on both sides of the table of the negotiations between state and Commonwealth over education policy. It's often said that where you stand depends on where you sit. So how has your perspective changed as you've moved uh, from the state and territory perspective to the Commonwealth perspective? What a great privilege it's been to have been in a position of leadership in the smallest jurisdiction of the country and indeed the largest one and the great privilege of coming to the Commonwealth. And I think the insights that I've gained from, as you put it, um, working on both sides have been really a defining part of my thinking today. So I've been really grateful for the opportunity to work very close and hand-in-hand with community and understand uh, some of the issues. Um, And I hope that I've brought that to the Commonwealth perspective, which is a little bit distanced um, in the education setting from, for example, in the needs of of schools. Um, It is states and territories who run schools, um, not the Commonwealth. Uh, but I've certainly drawn many a time on my invaluable experiences from both working um, in the ACT government and indeed the New South Wales government in bringing that uh, experience and depth of knowledge to the Commonwealth. From the Commonwealth's perspective, I'll often say to my staff, uh, when was the last time you were in a childcare centre? When was the last time you visited a school? When was the last time you were in a university? Uh, when's the when's the last time you've been in a registered training organisation to ensure that you're in sync so that when you're providing uh, the best possible policy advice to the government of the day that you um, have a reach and a scope and depth and it's not just theoretical but it's based on the, the practicalities of what's happening in each of those settings. As you'll recall from your time in, in the States and the ACT, uh, Not everyone at that level has an entirely positive view of the Commonwealth's role in education. You talked about the Commonwealth being a little distant from schools. Um, Professor Brian Caldwell was a little less generous. He described increased Commonwealth involvement in schools as a command and control model of public policy where, and I quote, states must adhere to an array of terms and conditions in order to receive funds. That's a critique you will have heard often at the state level when you explain uh, now to your former colleagues around the Commonwealth's role in a federal education system and the role, indeed, of education in a federation, how do you frame that? Well, I think it's important to recognise, you know, that there's got to be um, the best of both worlds and that can come together. You've got to have flexibility within a framework. So the Commonwealth's really in a position of handing out taxpayers' dollars. I have no qualms in saying states and territories have to be accountable for the receipt of Commonwealth um, dollars and taxpayers and, indeed, their own state dollars. You know, I would hope that we could work in partnership. You know, you're not going to get universal practice right across this country. In all states and territories, there are some things that the Commonwealth from uh, research and evidence will want to put in place and there's got to be some flexibilities where the state uh, environment has to be considered as we go forward and negotiate those agreements. So I would hope that in the next state Commonwealth agreement, which will happen um, in the schools area next year, that we're able to bring the best of both worlds together to ensure the very best for the next generation of students in our system. Are there things the Commonwealth could do to include the profession, teachers, school leaders at the policy table? 
Uh, absolutely, and we have a number of forums and stakeholder meetings at the Commonwealth. I'd like to increase those, and in fact, uh, one of the ones that I've instituted this year is with our uh, Indigenous Education Consultative Committees from across Australia. These are people who have a very strong um, Indigenous education voice in each of um, the states and territories, and I've instigated bringing them together to really both uh, start, hopefully, a long-term strategic partnership with with uh, Indigenous education consultative groups to be able to ensure that, one, we're exchanging information that we're sharing, that we're listening to the learnings that they have in order to form up policies. So, you know, that that happens. Um, I'm sure that from my state and territory days that indeed that happens at the local level. Um, I don't know a Minister of Education in a state or territory who doesn't meet with their key stakeholder groups pre to coming to ministerial council meetings and uh, we meet at the Commonwealth with our national stakeholder groups, whether that be parent groups, whether indeed that be principal groups. So it's got to be a combination of both then. I'd like to turn just briefly to post-school education and I recognise that responsibility here crosses a number of Commonwealth departments. It isn't uh, all within the Department of Education, but there have been a number of quite startling uh, reports and statistics recently. For example, a recent report that says only 70% of graduates are employed in full-time work, which is the lowest level since records began in 1982. And of course, a lot of public concern around the relative uh, attractiveness of a university education versus going to vocational education. This was picked up most recently in the Productivity Commission report uh, on shifting the dial. How do we think through the total post-school system? How do we make sure that uh, policy for VET matches policy for universities, matches policy for schools, and speaks in a sort of integrated way to ambitions for a, a great education system? It's a very good question, Glenn. And I think um, you know, looking back in the past, we probably worked in very much a siloed way in each of those areas. Um, it's only probably more recently uh, with things not going so good, for example, the Vet Fee Help Scheme and uh, looking at careers advice for those in the schooling sector, um, that we've recognised that we have to have a much more integrated policy. On the question of graduate employment and graduates, you know, I think the data and I if I'm right, the ABS data has always shown for over decades that graduates are better off in the labour market than non-graduates. Um, and I think indeed they've had lower unemployment rates at all time. Just demonstrating how important um, higher education remains a really good sound investment. So I think we have to be careful, go back to our evidence base. What does the evidence um, base tell us? You know, on the VET side, I think uh, you know we need to do better. We've gone through a really difficult time in the vocational education and now uh, we're in a position to relook at that and rebuild it. I think there is merit in us um, considering uh, what advice that students get in the senior years of, of in schooling, sorry. And indeed, uh, we've been working with key stakeholders outside the department and outside government on how do we get good career advice to students with um, up and coming um you know, choices that they have to make. And I think it works much more like an ecosystem. And when I think about the future, you know, we've got to think ecosystem. We can't think linear. We can't think siloed. We must think in a much, much different way, a networked way to ensure that at different points in time, people have access to high quality uh, courses 
uh, that enable them to be able to change employments, to be able to maximise their personal and professional potential across the sectors and and beyond schooling across uh, both higher ed and vet. Recently, Dr Andrew Charlton came on the policy shop and talked about automation and its consequences, arguing that over the next 30 years, almost every job in Australia will be affected by automation. And, And this goes to the point you just made. How does government or business or education providers think through future employment and therefore appropriate training if our aim is to get people into employment and of course that's by no means the only aim of education uh, how do we do so in a when the background is changing so quickly and none of us can be certain about future professions mm. well, i think you could know, it's the old saying the only thing that's certain is uncertainty for us all now in response to artificial intelligence i think in the replacement of jobs you know i think some of that some of that we what we have to balance that with is the new types of jobs that will be created and we really have to turn our minds to thinking about what are the replacement functions of artificial um, intelligence versus what are the augmentation functions uh, and how will that change the nature and distribution of work in any particular area. I have really privileged to go to Singapore most recently and uh, was privy to what they called as the industry transformation maps where they look at one year, three years, five years out and they're looking at the rate of um, automation on particular industries. I think they have 23 industry transformation maps. And then they're looking at where governments incentivise and what decisions they make on both the augmentation and replacement functions. So I think there's a lot in it. We can't let the pendulums um, you know, all swing to doom and gloom. It's simply not doom and gloom. We have to well-equip people for the nature and type of jobs that could be quite different to the ones that they're doing now. Indeed. So under the demand-driven system for the higher education system, effectively the labour market supply is determined by the aggregate decisions of 18-year-olds as they choose their course of study. I'm just, again, interested in what role for policy, what role for government in trying to think about uh, supply here? Yeah, again, a very good question, Glenn. I think um, there is a role for government, there's a, re- a role for all stakeholders to be really start thinking about, uh, you know, those choices of 18. Oh, as I said, the careers uh, strategy, people are going to change careers so many times. So, you know, you might start out at X and move to Y. Um, we all collectively should be thinking about uh, what levers we can use, what incentives we use, what are the key drivers we use to make sure that we have high quality, sustainable work placements for students um, in both higher ed and vocational education training. And just finally, a question on universities. There's been a debate around funding for universities, and I won't ask you to comment on that, but I will observe that Australian universities rely heavily on international students and therefore on international rankings to drive that $22.4 billion in education earnings in Australia each year. How much should government policy focus on that on the export market and how much should it be about domestic provision? Ah, look, you know, again, a really tough question. I mean, I'm a strong believer that we have to put diversity in our university sector. Um, Mm -hmm. Having one size fits all and universities of the past, um, all looking the same, all delivering the same, I think is a problem to the type of disruption that we're about to face. I think looking at both the diversity of international students um, coming 
into the country, two looking at uh, education as an export. I think we're the third greatest export and some wonderful work being done by um, universities collectively um, offshore, thinking about joint partnerships, which I know universities are doing with strategic partnerships with uh, international universities, all of those things. We need to keep an eye on international and we need to, um, you know, first and foremost, what what are our domestic provisions for our students in this country and uh, but not to drop the ball and uh, not forget the importance of our international purely because you know our third greatest export is education if one was to predict the future you would say that you know education is going to uh, make so many things more sustainable and uh, for me as an educator I put it front and centre of any policy discussion. Nicely put and indeed takes me to our last question which is to ask you uh, what gives you the greatest optimism about education? What makes it worth your while spending your life in this field? I think purely because I know and believe in what a difference education can make to the life opportunities and choices of individuals. And uh, I stand by that from my own career. I've made a deliberate um, choice to remain in education. And while I have done other things in larger portfolios, in addition to education, uh, it's a fundamental driver, a fundamental right of all Australians uh, to have a good quality education. And I just think uh, that that's the future, the next generations, to have a good, educated society that highly values education is exactly where we want to be. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure today to talk to the Secretary of the Australian Department of Education and Training, Dr. Michelle Bruniges. Michelle, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to The Policy Shop. This episode of The Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hahasi and Ruby Schwartz. Research by David Threlfall. Audio engineering's by Gavin Neighbour. The Policy Shop is licensed under Creative Commons. Copyright, the University of Melbourne, 2017.